Amen. All right. Good morning again. I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, find one. There should be one in the pew rack close in front of you so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. If you don't own a Bible, take, take one of those home as our gift to you. Read it, study it, see the face of God in it. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. It was a really good time together. I was reflecting on that kind of all week. It was a really full service, right? We celebrated some baptisms. Uh, we worshiped along with the children's choir. Uh, we worshiped along with the adult choir. There was some great congregational singing last week. And then we heard a familiar but very important sermon from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And, and we were able to do it all together here. Like we were able to do it all together in our place. What a blessing. And guess what? We do it again today. Like every Sunday is a little Easter. You know that, right? Like that's why we get together on Sundays because it's the day of Christ's resurrection and we celebrate that every time we get together. Well, last time we were in 1 Peter, two weeks ago, we tackled a text that is difficult, a text that is sensitive as the word of God called us to submit ourselves to governing authorities. And though I tried to be careful with my tone, in my frustration, in my heartache that has built up over the last two years, I'm afraid I came across more scolding than I wanted to. More scolding than you deserve, for sure. My frustration lies not primarily in this room, but outside these walls, with individuals and institutions that seem to embrace the very opposite view of texts like we saw last week and in doing it in the name of Jesus. In reflecting on and listening to the sermon again, I felt like I faithfully and accurately handled the passage, but I failed in at least one area, one area that I can rectify right now. I failed to express my gratitude and my appreciation for you, you who are here, you who are still here. Thank you for following our lead. Thank you for trusting us. Thank you for staying, even when you didn't necessarily like what was going on. Thank you for keeping the main thing the main thing. When so many things wound my heart, when I look around at so many things that wound my heart, you are a comfort. You are an encouragement. And so let me say it clearly. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm sorry that I didn't say that last week. I should have. As we get back into 1 Peter, I want us to reach a little further back than just two weeks ago. I want us to reach back to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And remember these three big principles we talked about from that text? Beloved, this world is not our home. Our citizenship lies somewhere else, right? We long for a city not made with human hands, a city that lasts and endures forever and ever. Number two, beloved, there is a war within. The flesh and the spirit are at odds with one another. This is a constant battle. Third, beloved, there is a world to win. Our verbal witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ must be undergirded by a Christian lifestyle. And in so doing, we win the world to the Lord Jesus Christ by faithful, bold witness to him. Peter, then after laying out those general principles, applied them to the very difficult relationship between his audience and the pagan hostile emperor Nero and Nero's delegated governing authorities. And so we try to take those principles and, and bring them into our world by using the same general principles. So I said, beloved, this place is not our home. We do live here, but we do not belong here. We are ultimately submissive to the heavenly king, Jesus Christ, right? 
And our submission to him frees us to submit ourselves to earthly authorities as submission to King Jesus. And I told you as we talked about this world not being our home, let us never forget as we navigate that tense relationship between us and the governing authorities over us that the king is coming back. The king of all the kings is coming back and he will establish his throne forever and ever and ever and there will be no debate about it. Secondly, I said, beloved, there's a world with, a, a war within. Our flesh wants to fight against every, all authority over us. We, we don't like submitting to any kind of authority. We rebel against that. We, our flesh wants to rebel against God. When he speaks directly to us, we want to rebel against him. Our flesh wants to rebel against every human authority for sure. And this is a real struggle that we have to fight. And we fight it by submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by submitting to the authorities that are over us as submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I told you that it's important that we ask the Lord to help us do that. If he has spelled something out clearly in his word, if he has said, this is, this is my will for you. If he has said that and we ask him to help us pursue that, would he fail us in that? Would he not empower us to do the very things he's called us to do? Certainly. Certainly in the gospel, he empowers us to do the things that he has called us to do. We couldn't do them on our own. We couldn't do them apart from him. But with the spirit in us, we can obey. And so we should ask for his help. And then finally, in this section, I told you that one of the best ways that we can fight our fleshly tendency toward rebellion against authority is to pray for those who are in the authority. And it's hard to rebel against someone that you're praying for on a regular basis. And so I asked this question, and I'll ask it again. When was the last time you prayed for Joe Biden? When was the last time you prayed for J.B. Pritzker? Thirdly, I said there's a world to win. And I asked you if the greatest longing of your heart is to make America an easy place to be a Christian? Or is the deepest longing of your heart to see your neighbors become Christians? Become Christians through your faithful proclamation and your good works and the power of God through the gospel? Is the longing of your heart to make disciples who can be Christians anywhere? Anywhere on the world? Anywhere on the history of time? Because they're faithful unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if that wasn't tricky enough, this week Peter addresses another tricky and sensitive part of life, namely the relationship between slaves and masters. And I want to make a few observations before we dive into the text that I think are going to help us receive the text faithfully. First, slavery is bad. Slavery is evil, even. Especially the form of slavery that America was guilty of before the Civil War. But even the form of slavery that existed in the first century in the Roman Empire, that is the context of Peter's letter here, even that was evil. And there's a part of me that wishes the Bible came out and expressly condemned slavery and called for its end. But it doesn't. At least it doesn't do that directly. You see, rather than take down slavery directly, the Bible focuses on the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what we see is that when people are changed by the gospel and they seek to follow Christ faithfully, social ills like slavery topple as a result. And we've seen that in history. Like as the gospel gains a foothold and people's lives are transformed by God's grace, then social ills like slavery in particular come crashing down in the wake of that. To say it a different way, the Bible is gospel first, kingdom first. And that impacts the culture as a result. It doesn't seek to reform the culture first in order to spread the gospel. Like we don't start with the culture and hope to spread the gospel. We start with the gospel and that will eventually transform the culture. But that's not the primary outcome we're looking for, right? 
The primary outcome is that people would praise God as he deserves. The primary outcome is that he would gain a people for himself that will worship him forever and ever. One of the happy side effects of that is that societies are transformed as lives are transformed. The Bible is gospel first, kingdom first. Slavery is evil. That was number one. Number two, since slavery has been abolished here in our society, praise God, to bring this passage into our day and age requires a little bit of work. So probably the best parallel for us is employment, especially employment where there's a dramatic imbalance of power, maybe even more especially employment where there is an unreasonable boss. Got a job with an unreasonable boss, what do you do? How do you live? Those are the questions we'll try to consider today. Now, I admit that this is not a direct, like, one-to-one parallel. Like, this is, your, your job is not like uh, what, the, what the audience of 1 Peter was dealing with, not directly like it. But I think this is going to serve, like last week's talk about the governing authorities, as a bit of argument from greater to lesser. Hear me out. If Christian slaves in the first century are to submit to hostile masters with all respect, then surely Christian workers in the 21st century should also submit to their bosses with all respect. Seems like a harder thing in the first century than it is today. And so we are not delivered from this call. Third, there's probably an even more general application of the principles here, namely in how we respond when we are the victims of injustice of some sort. When we find ourselves on the receiving end of unreasonable treatment, which brings about sorrow and suffering. What will we do? What will we do when we are harshly treated, particularly for the sake of Jesus Christ? What will we do? In these times, there's a way that seems right to my flesh. I have a fleshly lust for vindication. I have a fleshly desire to get even, to get revenge, to get my pound of flesh when I'm mistreated. Our fleshly lusts lean toward hatred or even violence in response to mistreatment. But we must remember the general principle from chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Read it with me. It's on the same page. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, Glorify God in the day of visitation. When we are victims of injustice, there's a way that seems right to my flesh, and there's a way that seems right to the world, especially here in America. There is a pressure to stand up, fight for our rights to the bitter end. There's a way that seems right to the flesh. There's a way that seems right to the world. But brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you today that this text is teaching us that there's another way namely the way of Jesus. In fact, it is the example of Jesus that Peter will bring forth as an elaboration, a detailed elaboration, to motivate his readers to walk a different way. That's why today, though we are only going to focus on verses 18 to 21 of chapter 2, I want us to read down through chapter 25 to get a bigger dose of the way that Jesus walked. What is the way of Jesus? What is the way in which he walked? And we'll look at that more closely next week. So read it together with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is God's word. Don't forget that. This is God's word. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, 
but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray together. Speak, O Lord, for your servants, your servants are listening. We want to know how we should live in this broken world as your chosen people. We want to know how to be good and faithful workers. We want to know how to respond when we're mistreated and filled with sorrow. So show us Jesus today. And give us courage to walk the path that he walked through suffering to glory. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, look at verse 18. Look at it closely. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Interestingly here, Peter uses an unusual word for servants, not the one that we're used to most of the time. It's not the common word for slave, but rather refers to those who work within the household. But what we know is that in the first century, these people were slaves. These people who worked in the household were slaves. So servants or slaves, if that's what you're reading in your translation, is a proper translation of the word that's there. But this unusual word is part of why we feel pretty good about bringing the applications into our relationships with our employee, our employers or our bosses. Because he's talking about folks who work within the household. Notice in the text, be submissive. Be submissive is the main imperative in this section just exactly like it was a couple of weeks ago when we talked about governing authorities. In fact, it's the very same word that was used back in verse 13. Same as there, the picture is putting oneself under the authority or the direction of another. Just like there, it's not the authority's responsibility to submit us, to coerce our submission. Rather, it is our job to put ourselves in a position and a posture of submission. So speaking of that word posture, I want you to notice the phrase in verse 18, with all respect. Some of your translations say, in all fear. And this is super important. Peter, like Paul does elsewhere, calls us to sincerity in this. Not mere lip service or eye service. We don't just go through the motions in our submission to these masters, these bosses. We do it with sincerity of heart. Paul focuses on this inner disposition in a parallel passage in Ephesians 6. Look at it on the screen. He says, slaves, he uses a stronger word there. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Now, once again, I must admit that this text rubs us the wrong way, right? I don't, I don't want to hear anyone 
talk to me about submission. I lean toward rebellion naturally. But let me remind you that this text is not about a natural life. It's not about the natural life of a lost person. This is about supernatural life of those who have been made new by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is about what God has made us to be. And this is how we should live as his chosen people. But read on. If this call to submission was not countercultural enough, look what he says next. He says, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respects, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Now, if you have ever worked under the authority of a good and gentle boss, you know what a joy that can be. There was one guy in my small group this morning that was like rejoicing over that today, talking about how his boss is good and gentle and reasonable and loves him even, it seems like. And if you find yourself in that position now, oh, praise the Lord, right? You got a good boss? Praise the Lord and give him thanks because that is rare. Fair enough? That is a rare thing. And it is easy or at least easier to submit to authorities who are good and pleasant. But what about those who are not? What about those who are unreasonable? And this text addresses it, right? In fact, the word for unreasonable here means crooked. Even to those who are unreasonable or crooked. It's the word behind the medical diagnosis for scoliosis. You might be familiar with scoliosis. It's that, it's that um, abnormal curvature of the spine which causes all kinds of problems in the rest of the body, right? It's the word he uses to describe these crooked bosses. But he doesn't just use that word to describe them. He outlines the results of their crookedness in the text. He says, if you read on down, that in their crookedness, and as we subject ourselves to them, it brings sorrow and perhaps unjust suffering in verse 19. And then he mentions that they are treated harshly. Servants of crooked masters are often treated harshly. So what do we do as God's people when we find ourselves in a difficult situation like this? We submit to them with all respect. That's what the text says. There's, no, there's really kind of no way around that. Now, I am thankful, let me say this and hear it clearly, that we live in a society where often we can say, I quit. And we go find another job. I'm thankful that we live in a society where we can say, I'm calling up the human resources department and I'm reporting this because it's not the way it should be. But we must acknowledge that most of Peter's first century audience didn't have any of those options. They were slaves. We've got options, but listen to me. If you take those options, we must do it with respect. We must do it with respect. This text, nor any other I know in the Bible, gives us permission to borrow a line from David Allen Coe and tell our bosses to take this job and shove it. To say to them, you better not stand in my way as I'm a walking out the door. This text, nor any other in the Bible, gives us opportunity to do that. Even if the foreman is a regular dog and the line boss is a fool, brothers and sisters, beloved, you are called to respect. You are not like this world. This world is not your home. You're an alien. You're an exile. So show them. Show them the values of your king. Show them the values of your kingdom, his kingdom. Show them Jesus, even when you're mistreated. Or consider staying through that tough job. 
showing the king and his kingdom, even when you're mistreated. Look at what Peter says next in verse 19. He says, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Well, that doesn't sound anything like David Allen Coe, does it? And a song written to that will not hit the top 40. The key phrase in this whole text, maybe this whole section, is for the sake of conscience toward God. ESV renders it simply mindful of God. And I think that gets to the essence of it all. This is about you having your mind fixed on Him, not merely on the circumstances you're in. It means wanting Him to be seen in you and through you by the watching world. It's like what we said a few weeks ago when we were called to submit to governing authorities for Christ's sake. Not not because the authority deserves it, but for Christ's sake. Here, we submit to our bosses with all due respect, with a mind conscious of God, with God on our minds. Our crooked bosses will not compel this kind of bearing up under sorrows that Peter speaks of. But a mind fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ will compel that. So how do we do that? If, if the key to all of this is, is having a consciousness of God as we work under a boss, how do we stay mindful of God when life is hard? I'll give you three things that I think are helpful to stay mindful of God when life is hard. Number one, personal spiritual disciplines. For more information, talk to Reed Roper. Pray regularly. Read the Bible regularly. Take in the scriptures. Read it. Study it. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Fill your mind and your heart up with the word of God. Worship with God's people. Worship in your secret, private place. Know how the king and his kingdom work so that you can live that way. Number one, how do you keep mindful of God when life is hard? Keep engaging the spiritual disciplines. Don't give up on your personal walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, Fellowship with other Christians. One of the ways we keep our minds fixed on God when life is hard is we spend time around believers. And that is not natural, at least not for me. For me, when life is hard, I want to go away. I want to hide. I want to be by myself. I want to isolate. But I know that it's good for me to be around you. Because like we saw in the text this morning, part of the design of God's gathering of his people is to comfort one another, encourage one another, and edify one another, build one another up. How does, how does he do that? He does that through his people. Not exclusively, but partly through his people he builds us up. How do we stay mindful of God when life is hard? We maintain spiritual discipline. We fellowship with other believers. And listen, this third one may be really helpful. We receive the difficulty as a means of sanctification. We receive it, like we mindfully receive the difficulty as a means of sanctification. Maybe the example of this is that red light at walk and roll. You know, I talk about that all the time. Every time I get stopped at that thing, I got to say, this is here to make me like Jesus. Like this thing exists to make me more like Jesus. And that's a, that's a small, kind of almost silly example of the way we should receive hardships and difficulties in our lives. Like not just why is this here, but how is this going to make me like Jesus? This thing is coming at me, that boss that is hard on me because I'm a Christian. I need to start receiving that as a means that God has given to make me more like Jesus. And I think this text bears that out as you read on through it. So keep our minds fixed on the Lord. And this will put us in the best position to follow him faithfully. 
And if we're keeping our minds fixed on the Lord, you know what that means? It means our minds are not fixed on our boss. It means our minds are not fixed on our suffering. It means our minds are not fixed on our situation. Because when our minds are fixed on those things, the spiral goes downward. But when our minds are fixed on the Lord, there is growth in godliness and Christlikeness. So keep your eyes fixed on him, not on them. Look at verse 20. It says, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. This is the logic of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of this world. This is the logic of the kingdom of God, and it flows right out of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. I read this, and I thought, I read this text, and I read 1 Peter, and I thought, maybe Peter was listening all along. Maybe he was picking up some of what Jesus was teaching in those three years they walked together. Because look at Luke chapter 6 in the words of Jesus. Verse 27 says, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. Verse 32 changes everything. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself, he himself is kind to the ungrateful and evil men. He himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Evidently, that soaked into Peter, right? And so he gives these directives to the local churches, Christians who are scattered all over Asia Minor. That's not natural. That's supernatural. That way of living doesn't come from the world. It comes from the Lord. I love Peter's frankness in the text in verse 20. He's like, if you do wrong, if you sin, and you get harshly treated... There's no reward when you bear the punishment for what you deserve with patience. I think some people in the Christian world need to be reminded of this. Not all ill treatment from the lost world is persecution. Some of it is justice. Some of it you deserve. And some of it's because you're a jerk. One of my friends once said, Christian, not all of your suffering is a result of the world's hatred of Jesus. Some of it is a result of your own sin." Or your own stupidity. I think that's fair. And I, I think that's part of what Peter is taking here. If you're suffering because you've done wrong, don't brag about bearing the justice of that. You deserve that. It's kind of like that guy on the cross. One of the guys on the cross, he's like, why are you hurling insults at him? We're here because we deserve to be here. He doesn't deserve this. He, he doesn't get to say, oh, I'm suffering like Jesus. No, he knew he deserved to be on the cross. That guy did. This is about when we're doing right. This text is about what, what about when we suffer when we're doing right? Because we're doing right in the sight of God. And then the world dumps on us anyway. When that happens, 
This text says that we patiently endure it rather than lashing out in fleshly and selfish vengeance. And when we do that, the Lord sees it and he's pleased. This finds favor. This finds favor. Notice this progression. You do right. You suffer for doing right. You patiently endure it. And you find the favor of God. Every step in that progression is resisted by the flesh. Your flesh doesn't want you to do right. It wants you to do wrong. Your flesh doesn't want any kind of suffering. Any suffering that comes your way, whether you deserve it or not, your flesh is like, this this is no good. I don't like this. I want to get out of this as quickly as I can. Your flesh does not want to patiently endure any kind of suffering. And your flesh is really not interested in the favor of God. Only the pleasure it can receive for itself. Every step in that progression is resisted by the flesh. It's contrary also to the culture around us. This is not the way of the world. This is the way of the kingdom of God. More importantly, this is the way of the king. It's not just the way of the kingdom of God. It's the way the king walked. Look at it in verse 21. This is the key to the whole thing. He says, for you have been called to this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. The king, King Jesus, did it right, always. Did right only. Did right ever. And he was mistreated in the worst ways. He suffered, this text says, for us. When it says he suffered for us, I think primarily, Peter is talking about sacrifice, atonement, propitiation. Beloved, Jesus suffered and died in our place. Our sin was placed upon him and he died for us. He satisfied the wrath of God for us so that we could be justified, forgiven, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be saved by grace alone. He did this so that God would be just because sin is punished and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered for us so that we could be saved so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be redeemed. Oh, friend, be saved today. Oh, friend, repent of your sins and put your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ and be saved today. When we think about Jesus' death like this text causes us to do, we must think primarily in terms of substitutionary atonement. But there is an element of example which is called out in this text also. I don't think this text is only about example. I think it's primarily about sacrifice and atonement, but it's also about example. Notice he says, we were called to follow in his steps. I remember when I was a teenager, there there was a guy who wrote a book called, What Would Jesus Do? Raised the question, what would Jesus do? And everybody I knew had a bracelet that said WWJD on it. Maybe that would be a good thing to recall to mind next time you're mistreated at work for being a Christian. Next time you get dumped on by the world, because you're a Christian, because you're faithfully following Christ, because you're doing what is right, maybe WWJD would be a good thing to be reminded of. What did Jesus do when he was mistreated? He endured it. He was quiet. He didn't exchange insult for insult. He suffered. He calls us to follow him in that. It's part of what we were talking about with Miss Emma. When he says, follow me, it's about more than just initial faith in Christ. It's about more than conversion. It's not not less than that, right? It's not less than a call to trust in him, but it's more than that. And Peter, the author of this letter, didn't, didn't understand that at first. 
He didn't understand that at first because there's this scene in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus is talking plainly about his own suffering. And Peter hears that and he's like, no, no, the Messiah doesn't suffer. Read it with me. Uh, Verse 21, Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. That's interesting. Show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Hard stop there. Don't, don't read on. Jesus is speaking plainly about his suffering, death, and resurrection. And Peter, verse 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him. This guy, Peter, Jesus is speaking about the mission for which he came to the world, and Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him? Saying, God forbid it, Lord. God forbid it, Lord. That's crazy. This is the whole plan. God forbid it. God planned it. God ordained it. Peter will come to realize that later, and he'll preach about it that way. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, that's Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That was Peter as he walked with Jesus. And now we read him in his epistle to the church after the resurrection, after his restoration. He evidently learned over time to put his mind on God's interests, not on man's interests. Oh, may the Lord grant us that grace as well. Grant us that grace as well. That we would have our mindset on God's interests and not on man's interests. So here's the application from those three things we've talked about for the last month. Beloved, this place is not our home. This place is not our home, so we will be rejected, we will be mistreated as we align ourselves with the true king and his kingdom. As we live here in this broken world, we align ourselves with Jesus, we'll be mistreated, we'll be rejected. We may take a beating here, literally, figuratively. We may take a beating here, but in the end, if we walk faithfully with him and we trust in him, we will hear him say, well done, servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. We must keep our minds on him always, always, through spiritual disciplines, through fellowship in the church, through receiving suffering as a means of sanctification, to say to ourselves, this was given to me to make me more like Jesus. How will this make me more like Jesus? Beloved, this place is not our home. What would we expect? What would we expect from this place? It's not our home. Number two, beloved, there is a world, a war within. There is a war within. Nothing in your flesh leans the way Peter is telling us to lean. Nothing in our flesh leans the way Jesus leans on this. But I want you to know there is another way. There is another way to live. Another way to live that is the way of Jesus. I'm convicted. That whole thing about David Allen Coe, that song, I'm convicted because that voice, that tone, that message oftentimes is louder in my head than the voice of the Holy Spirit is in my heart. That voice that says, you fight for your rights. You don't deserve to be treated like this. You stand up. You tell them, you tell them what for. That voice is really loud in my head sometimes. And man, our culture feeds that, echoes that voice. And sometimes it's louder than the voice of the Spirit in my heart. I want to hear the voice of the Spirit. I want to walk the way of Jesus. 
Brothers and sisters, there is another way, but it's a war. And remember, it's a battle not, not for our jobs. It's a battle not for our financial security. It's a battle not for our prestige or standing in the culture. What's the battle for? Our souls. That's what he said. Wage war against your soul. That lustly flesh wages war against your soul. Beloved, there's a war within. Fight. Fight. Number three, beloved, there's a world to win. Oh, friends, remember that they're watching. Your neighbors and your coworkers that don't know Jesus are watching, always watching. They're listening to see if we're going to talk about the boss, the unreasonable, crooked boss. Are we going to talk like the, about them like they talk about them? They're watching to see how we react when we catch heat because we're Christians. My question is, what will they see? They are watching. This, this lost world is watching. The question is, what will they see? Will they see that we are just like them? We talk about the boss just like them. We submit to authority just like them. We sing songs just like them. We behave just like them. Or will they look at us and see Jesus? Will they see that we walk the road that Jesus walked? Let them see Jesus. Let them see Jesus, brothers and sisters. And then you tell them. You tell them about Jesus. You tell them about how he changed your life. You tell them about how you have a home that is elsewhere and forever. You tell them about how he is the king who is coming. And you invite them to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as well. Let's stand together and pray. Father in heaven, we admit that, that hearing your word like this is not easy. Uh, we acknowledge that our flesh wants to resist all of this, wants to find a loophole that will deliver us from the obligations of this text. Help us to make war against that flesh that is warring against our souls in this moment. And give us faith that submits to you. Give us trust to follow after Jesus down the hard road. Show us that discipleship is about taking up a cross and following Jesus through the narrow gate, down the difficult road that leads to life and glory. And I pray for your people that you will teach us how to live in this broken world as your people. Help us to live in such a way that when they watch us, they will see Jesus. And when we open our mouths, oh, Father, let them hear Jesus. Help us live in obedience to you. We trust that you'll provide that help because you've called us to this. You, we have been called for this purpose, the text said. And Father, we pray for men and women and boys and girls who hear this and don't belong to you. Oh, Father, would you reach to them like you reached to us, rescue them, redeem them, open their eyes to your holiness and righteousness, open their eyes to their sinfulness, teach them that the wages of sin is death, that wrath and judgment await. And in the brokenness, Father, will you open their eyes to the cross, let them see that Christ suffered for them, died in their place. Father, give them faith to trust in Christ. Give them repentance to turn away from that old life and walk with you in righteousness. And do it, not for their good, primarily, but for your glory, for your glory in their lives and through their lives, we pray it in Christ's name.